Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings, pod pickers. It's Tony Blackburn here, welcoming you to the Reasons to be Cheerful Top 10 Ideas of the Year. What's going up? What's going down? And what's a non-mover? Handing over to your esteemed hosts, it's Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Take it away. Ah, uh, it's Tony Blackburn, which means one thing. Uh... What does it mean? It's that time of year again. It's the reasons to be cheerful top ten of the year. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. Well, it doesn't mean just one thing, actually. It means more than one thing. It means Tony Blackburn's a nice guy that he recorded that little intro for us. Yes? Yeah. I don't think we told him that we'd be using it year in, year out in perpetuity. I think he'd have been more likely to do it if he'd known it wasn't just a one-off, don't you think? Yeah, he's he's immortalised now. you know more about these things than me, but he's probably immortalised in other ways more famously than doing the sort of little <laughs> jingle for the reasons to be cheerful top ten. I like to think this this is going to be the thing he's going to be remembered by, and I'm not going to check Wikipedia just in case. Yeah. So what kind of year has it been like for reasons to be cheerful, Jeff? I think as ever, going back through the episodes, it's, yep. it's been an excellent year. I think of this episode as very much, now that's what I call cheerful. Well, maybe we should release the CD. For those younger, younger listeners who don't know, there was this, the whole series of CDs called Now That's What I Call Music. Blah. What number did it get up to, do you think? It's still going. Is it? Yes. I think it's up to like number 800 or something now. But also, just for our younger listeners, there used to be these things called CDs. What, is it not still a compact disc? A younger person's never seen a CD. But, but you, sorry, are you saying it still exists on CD or not? I think they do, but I just don't think people buy CDs in any significant way anymore. So what happens to it? I guess people look it up on Spotify and then listen to it. This looks quite good. So is that going to be going on your Walkman then? Diana Ross, Westlife, Rod Stewart, Sting. 
Hang on, are you sure this is the current one you're looking yeah, at? Yeah, no, that's why. Nineteen ninety-three. No, that's why I called Music One Hundred and Ten. I've got it, honestly. Wow, I bumped into our friend David Joseph the other day, who is the chairman oh, yes. of Universal Music. Yes, and he said he bumped into you. Yeah, and you'd mentioned Sam Fender. Yeah, and he said that's how he knew that an act had made it through into the mainstream. <laughs> that if Ed knows their name. Then there's real penetration beyond just music official. But where's our interview with Sam Fender? Well, you promised one. Well, he sort of said he might mention it to him. I saw him one week and he said he might mention it. And then I think I saw him again, but only a few days later. And I was like, what's happened with Sam Fender? He's, I think he's sort of <laughs> in play. It's like, well, I've not met him yet. So you just give me a moment here. Uh, I would really like to interview Sam Fender next year. Let me just declare. Yeah, I think he's been your musical artist of 2021, hasn't he? I listen to him a lot. He's, he's replaced Taylor Swift. In the shower. He's replaced Taylor Swift in the shower. Exactly. Oh, I, I, there's so much to tell you. I... Uh, I had to go to a memorial for a very close friend of mine who died in Toronto, as you know, uh, just before Christmas. There's one nice aspect of it, which is that uh, Melanie, his wife, gave, his widow, gave me his, you know, those big furry hats, those big furry sort of... Oh, the like, sort of Russian-y ones. Yeah, yeah, with the ear flaps and so on. Anyway, and you know, I had a really interesting thing happened, which is that I had this sort of premonition in the taxi going to the airport that I was going to lose the hat. And... I then get on the plane and I'm like schlepping onto the plane and it's all a bit shopping bags and all that. And then about five minutes later, a man comes up to me and says, I think you dropped your hat. It's a Christmas miracle. It was a Christmas miracle. I said to him, I explained the story to him. And then I spoke to Leo's daughter, Vida, and I said, I just had this premonition, don't tell your mother, that, but that I was going to lose a hat. She said, well, actually, Leo always used to lose his hat and it always used to come back. And now that's going to happen to you. That's quite moving, isn't it? Yeah. Did you want to tell people a, a little bit about Leo? Well, yeah, I mean, he was he was a very close friend of my dad's. Um, and when my dad died in 1994, he became my sort of father figure. And he was a sort of big bear of a Canadian man who was sort of, he must have been six foot three, I think. You just have those people in your life who are sort of there at all the moments you need them to be there. And, you know, because my dad lost my dad when I was relatively young at 24, we had used to have political discussions, sometimes arguments, but he was a very special person and he unfortunately died of COVID a year ago. Um, he, he was also amazing with children. So um, even though my kids met him only four or five times, they were the people saying to me, you've got to go to this memorial, you've just got to go, you've just got to find a way of going. And so I did go and I was really, you know, it was really important to be there. And it would have meant the world to his family as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, it was, an imp- it was important. So should we get on to the top 10? Yes. So I feel like we've gone through the episodes very much like we're like the men from Del Monte, squeezing the oranges, finding the finest ones. Yeah. And these are the ones that we have said. I mean, can I just make a point at the beginning? Yes. Which is about my oranges, so to speak. <laughs> yes. I thought you you sort of respectably met the bar by putting one because Jeff did the initial selection by putting one of my four book episodes in let me put it this way I don't think you sailed over the bar I think you just sort of (laughs) you know because we did four book episodes there's 52 episodes in the year proportionately there were like one thirteenth of the episode so okay one made it but I mean I don't know who the most famous pole vaulter in the world was but it wasn't like you 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 kind of just (laughs) inched over it I, I, di- I didn't want to. I didn't want to. It seemed like we were shilling 
for, no, for you point. and your book. You okay, good point. want people to feel yeah, like paper, you were pushing it on. Paper back out in March, yep. What I wanted to do is just remind them that the book came out this year and if they, if, if they then have their memories jogged and want to go and get a copy, they can have a good rummage around in that basket they have in the bookshops. <laughs> I think it should be about halfway down in there. Yes. When's the paper back out? March, I think. I think we'll be right back on it in March. Oh, yeah, Go Big episodes five to nine. Exactly. Maybe a couple of them will make next year's top ten. So so these are, these are the oranges that we've, we've yeah. squozen and we've said. Yeah. Do you not know that the man from Del Monte's catchphrase yeah. was yes? Yes, I did know that. I'm just still thinking about you squeezing my oranges. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, greetings, pod pickers. Let's let's go straight in at number 10. And at number 10, it's episode 199. Straight to voicemail, the right to disconnect from work. Now, this was an episode which my whole office accused me of having an irony bypass about because here was I uh, <laughs> doing an episode about the right to disconnect when I am very bad at giving my office the right to disconnect. And here's Professor Anna Cox, and she's Professor of Human-Computer Interaction at University College London. And she played a lot of arcade games as a kid, she told us. And that's what led her indirectly uh, to this role and we were asking her about the impact of the pandemic on the right to disconnect. Many of the people we've had in our studies also reported that their workday extended much longer than it ever had done. And they just found it really difficult at the end to, to switch off and say, OK, that's enough now. And it used to be, for if you were normally based in an office, that as you left work at the end of the day, you literally left work behind you. You walked away from it and you didn't have to think about it anymore. When it's in your home, you don't have that neat physical boundary. You're not moving to a different space. Um, so you have to find other ways to try to do this. So one way could be to use different bits of technology for things you might do for work and things you might do for home. So for some people, that might mean having two computers, one which they use for work and one which they use to watch Netflix on. Um, it, it means doing things like if we only have one device, perhaps taking some of the access to work things off. So removing access to work email from your phone so that you can't be tempted to engage in your work when you're on holiday or in the playground with your kids or having a conversation with your friends. Kenneth Clark doesn't have a mobile phone, or at least he does have a mobile phone, but there's only one person who used, who I think has his number. There's sort of more extreme versions, aren't there? I mean, just switching off your phone. I mean, it's hard to do if you're an employee because the problem is of expectations of employers. It's one thing if you're Kenneth Clark, but it's another thing if you're... Absolutely. You know, working for a, a boss. Absolutely. And and this is where the real struggle is for many people, that they feel that there is an expectation to be available and to respond and to respond in a very short time frame. So often people don't feel that it's OK to ignore that email until tomorrow and to respond tomorrow. So I think this is really where there's an opportunity for policy to really help um, help the employees and help the employers negotiate this kind of situation. So those sort of 
policies around um, the right to switch off enable they they start with a conversation I think between the employer and the employees about what this might really look like because it might be um, tempting I guess to start with to say okay well we'll just tell people that they're not allowed to email after a particular time but if we do that we're now removing some of the benefits that came with flexible and remote working in terms of enabling people to work at different times of the day and fit it in around other responsibilities. So having conversations about how we want to work and and how we might implement some of those boundaries helps us to get to a point where we're thinking about what our expectations are and we're negotiating um, a position where we don't expect people to respond very quickly. What do you think the answer is for policymaking? It sounds like ensuring the conversation happens rather than a hard and fast rule. Is that right? Yeah, because I, I think that if there's a bit of a danger that we could end up with poorly designed policy that doesn't really work for the people. And, and when we're trying to empower people and take advantage of some of the things that come with flexible working, which aren't just about being able to decide when and where you work, but also include enabling other people to take part in the workforce who weren't able to do that before because they couldn't commit to the kind of very constrained way that an organisation was operating. So I think in terms of how we design policies, we really want to have organisations think very carefully about what their policy is going to look like and how they're going to implement it. Next up, climbing up the chart at number nine from episode 208, The Future of Money, From Cryptocurrency to the Decline of Cash. Uh, we talked to Alex Hearn, who is UK technology editor at The Guardian. This was a mind bender, wasn't it? It was a mind bender. I think we both felt completely ignorant on the subject of cryptocurrency. And I feel that now I'm about like, one or two notches above ignorant. I'm not, actually. The problem I have is one of these things where you understand it for a bit and then it just sort of floats away. Do you know what I mean? And this is before we even get onto non-fungible tokens, which is the next one of these we need to try and wrap our heads around. We do need to do non-fungible tokens next year, don't you think? Mm, definitely. We should do a non-fungible podcast. Maybe you've had an idea. I mean, maybe this is like 2022's Make Your Own Sandwich. <laughs> non-fungible podcasts. Just as a serious a serious point, if our listeners have ideas about what they'd like to see on the podcast, cheerfulpodcast.com, people should email us. We we will, we need more emails. We do. We don't want the right to disconnect from our listeners. Anyway, so so uh, so yes, on cryptocurrency, we we tried to wrap our head around it by asking Alex Hearn, who is UK technology editor at The Guardian. He's a smart bloke. Extremely smart. And just to, to walk us through the basics. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer currency. A lot of buzzwords, but that means it is um, the first real working example of an online form of money, a a digital native form of cash that didn't rely on some middleman, some uh, a bank or a company like PayPal to act as the go-between for all of the financial transactions that happened on it. On a technological basis, that's a really tough nut to crack. Because if you think about what uh, what digital money means, it's very easy to do it if you have a centralised thing. Because then it's just 
Santander records how much money I have in a big spreadsheet or thereabouts. And when I send someone money, they drop the number down. When someone sends me money, they raise the number up. And because everyone trusts them and the other banks, that's fine. When you lose those centralised authorities, suddenly, you know, there's no real way to stop me sending you money and telling you, don't worry, I've changed my record of it. And then not changing my record and sending money to everyone. You know, you can cut and paste a JPEG a million times. So you can't exactly use a picture of a banknote. So what do you do? And Bitcoin is the first big answer for what you do, which is basically throw maths and computer cycles at it so that you can build a global network where every member of the network spends real resources proving that they believe that what is on the network is true. And, you know, you can get more or less in depth than that, but those real resources are a big part of it. And the, the decentralised aspect is the other. Because that resource part is 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 what was kind of um, revelatory to me because I understood mm. it as uh, it being some kind of digital bureau to change into a digital currency. But it it's not just that then. It, 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 it's It's being mined and created out of thin air using i mean this this bit you're going to have to go through <laughs> with me and this mining yeah this mining thing is like so, mind blowing. the fact that it's half of the half a percent of the world's electricity is just I, when wrong. i read that recently i just couldn't believe it so, so to, to make new bitcoin you you have to get your computer to solve an equation but you, you, your computer isn't solving an equation for the good of humanity it's just doing it to prove that you, you're willing to put in the effort to make the bitcoin Exactly. Basically, the way that the Bitcoin network is secured, the way that everyone on this network makes sure that no one can just jump in and lie about how much money they have, is that every 10 minutes, one person on the network is given the right to validate all the transactions that happened in the last 10 minutes. And that means they take all, you know, everyone is sending every transaction they do all the time to everyone. So everyone is storing a record of every transaction. Every 10 minutes, you go, stamp, I have heard these transactions. And that stamp doesn't go to a centralised authority. It doesn't go to your Santander or your PayPal. It goes to, effectively, the winner of a big old lottery. And the way you enter that lottery is by doing arbitrarily hard maths on your computer. Literally pointless equations. The only reason why these equations exist is because they're hard to do on a computer. And that means that you can't do... You can't just randomly spin up a billion lottery tickets to this lottery because each lottery ticket takes real computer cycles and so real electricity and real time to do. Do the very vocal fans of Bitcoin tend to be these kind of, I don't know, uh, advocates of a libertarian utopia or people who think they might get rich off it and they don't want it taken away? These days, it feels more the latter. It's actually, it's it's quite refreshing uh, in my line of work to come across someone who is a, a, an unabashed fan of Bitcoin because they do want to destroy governments and destroy the Bank of England and hand monetary policy over to the people. Because I, I feel that's a very honest way of looking at it, because that is what um, Bitcoin does. The people who kind of like Bitcoin because... Well, you know, you can you can speculate on it, make a bit of money, but I quite like the world mostly as it is, are, I think, to a greater or lesser extent, deluding themselves. If there is value in Bitcoin, it is the value of it being a sizable proportion of the economic activity of the world. The value of Bitcoin, the reason why you would speculate on it is because you hope that the Bitcoin you buy now will be money 
real money that everyone is using in a decade's time. But there's no world where Bitcoin is money, normal, everyday money that you're using in a coffee shop. There isn't also a world where Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee meets and just can't do anything because they don't control the rate of interest in Bitcoin loans. And a world where, you know, the IRS and HMRC have no real ability to prosecute financial crime because there's no banking regulations that you can hold people to. You know, this is the world where Bitcoin becomes mainstream. That was a drum roll. Uh, At number eight, it's reasons to be playful. Protecting children's right to play. And this is one of the themes of 2021, I'd say, which is Wales. Not Jimmy Wales, not Wales in the sea. Wales has been a revelation this year. Wales has been a revelation. And this is about what Flincher is doing to prioritise play. We spoke to Alid Hansen. We love this guy. We love this guy. His enthusiasm distilled and bottled. So the big thing about the play is that it's it's exclusively child-led. So every day you turn up, you literally have no idea what you're going to have done to you. I've had so many bad face paint jobs. Um, <laughs> children just going mad on my face with face paints. Um, it's just everything. We've had water slides. We've had bake-offs. It's just sort of like... The whole of Flincher is just taken over by play just for the whole summer. It's so joyful, you know, in sort of all the local areas and the local parks. If you're walking around, uh, walking about, going about your day, you'll just see, you know, children having fun. It, it really is just the best. Tell us about how the play schemes relate to the right to play in Wales. So I think the significant thing about about the right to play is that, you know, it's been legislated on by the United Nations. So there's that acknowledgement that every child has the right to play. But I think the difference in Wales is that it comes alongside that acknowledgement that, you know, there are barriers to that right to play as well. So I think that's that's what the play scheme is very good at tackling in the sense that it's completely free. It's completely, you know, free at the point of access. So every single child in Flincher can take part if they want to. And I, I guess that, uh, that that sort of gives us an idea of how important it is and these kinds of provisions with regards to tackling inequality between children. Definitely. And I think especially, you know, conversations around inequality relating to children and child poverty often are really centred around food poverty. And that's a really important issue. That's, you know, the most vital issue, of course. But, you know, these other things like play are also massively important to a child's development. And often that doesn't come into the conversation very often. What is interesting in Wales is sort of the, the different ways that's being tackled. For example, when lockdown first came in, and obviously children's opportunity to play with each other outside, you know, completely went... Um, the the Welsh Government introduced a hub scheme, which was a a scheme to sort of tackle digital inequality in Wales. And as part of this, they had like a a programme, a sort of um, hub of programmes, so, uh, you know, to to help them with their schoolwork, things like Microsoft Word, whatever. But they also included Minecraft in the the hub of programmes. My 11-year-old son was extremely excited when he said to me, I just, he's actually been at home today, but he's not been well. So I told him about this and he said to me, I'm moving to Wales. So Minecraft was included. Well, yeah, which is really interesting. It's the recognition that as sort of, as as play changes, the, the ability to sort of adapt to that. 
Um, and and also that there was some really interesting research done after the first lockdown came in that 50% of young people had communicated with their friends over video games and, and two thirds of the parents of those young people thought it contributed positively to their well-being. So, you know, I think as much as conversations about video games can sometimes be like, oh, you know, it, it's not as good as proper play, you know, especially in, in the situation of lockdown, it was one of the only way young people were were uh, communicating with each other. Back to the pick of the pops, our chart rundown. Ba, 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 ba. We're at number seven and we are on episode 206. Now, obviously, uh, one of the central things for us this year was COP26. And across the summer, we did a series of episodes counting down to that climate summit. And that countdown makes our countdown. We kind of framed what the issues were going to be going into it, the, the lay of the land, what was reasonable to expect. And then, of course, when COP itself rolled around, our man Ed Miliband was there with his tape recorder, and uh, we we got some great conversations there too. Had a few struggles with the tape recorder, let's be honest about it, but that's sort of part of the course. part of the course with you yeah. and technology. Exactly. That's been a big feature of 2021, I think, my struggles <laughs> with technology. I think Emma deserves a sort of knighthood, damehood, and sort of peerage all wrapped up into one for having sort of coped with this. You often exercise your right to disconnect from audio technology. I do. Well, I sort of... It's sort of, it's really annoying. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll try and do better in 2022. It's one of my New Year's resolutions. So here it is. This is from the fourth of our Countdown to COP episodes. And we spoke to the incredibly inspiring climate activist and founder of the Rise Up movement, Vanessa Nakate, who told us about what the situation is in Uganda, where the climate crisis is taking its toll. Because of the rising global temperatures, weather patterns are changing across the world. And Uganda as a country is not an exception. You know, because of the rising global temperatures, we are seeing extreme weather events happening in our country, Uganda. We've seen droughts, we've seen floods, we've seen landslides. And of course, if nothing is done about this, we are going to see more and more unfolding of such devastating events. For example, when you go to the eastern part of the country in the Mount Elgon areas, we've seen extreme rainfall cause massive flooding, massive landslides leading to destruction of people's homes, destruction of people's farms, people's businesses, and literally people being left with nothing, you know, to survive on. Last year during the pandemic, we saw the rise of the water levels of Lake Victoria and people's homes were encroached, toilets were submerged, you know, leading to a water crisis. And the northern parts of the country are experiencing extreme dry conditions that are drying uh, water sources, that are drying people's crops. So for Uganda, the climate crisis is here now. And Uganda as a country is heavily dependent on agriculture for survival, especially for many families in the rural communities. So a lack of rain means hunger, starvation and death for many people. And also extreme rainfall means hunger, starvation, destruction for many people. I can say that for the people of Uganda, the climate crisis is here now. It is our present and it is our present nightmare. 
the people who have been facing the impacts of the climate crisis and still are facing the devastating impacts of the climate crisis, they did not cause the climate crisis, but they are paying for that. So it's important to listen to our voices because we have stories to tell and our stories have solutions to give and our our solutions, they have lives to change. So when, when we speak up, we are speaking for our communities. We are speaking for those who already lost their lives, who already lost their farms, their businesses because of the climate crisis. We are speaking for those who are suffering right now and trying to protect you know, the future for the coming generations and even our own future. So it's important to have every voice included because if some voices are left out, that is, then it's not justice at all. Then, then that means that we won't be able to fully eradicate the challenges, the inequalities that are brought about as a result of the climate crisis. We're now getting up to the, to the absolute elite. We're at the top of the bottom. We're at the we're at the top of the bottom. That's true, uh, and top of the bottom. Uh, I don't think we should describe him like that. It's episode one hundred and ninety two where we got on the met- metaphorical bus to Manchester with the episode "Ticket to Ride: Buses, Burnham, and Public Control," and we talked to the King of the North, Andy Burnham, about what he was up to in Manchester. Uh, with the buses. This is a massive issue, bus services. It's a massive issue in my constituency in Doncaster. It's a massive issue. I mean, essentially, outside London, this is like a massive unaddressed problem uh, because London has much more regulated bus services. And Andy, as as mayor of Greater Manchester, is seeking to do something about it. So here's Andy. If you take funding out of it, how do your powers on this compare to Sadiq Khan's in London? It's very much based on the London model, Jeff, and London never had what we had. You know, their buses were never deregulated. So London maintained a regulated system. I think there is now a general recognition that the free-for-all in transport just does not work whatsoever. If you give the 2.8 million people of Greater Manchester a London-style public transport system with London-level fares, and what I mean by that is not just £1.55 to catch a bus, but also a daily cap no matter how many buses or trams you take, that is levelling up, in my view. That is a proper plan to level up because then all of the people who live here will be able to connect to training, to jobs, to opportunity. And the, the buses aren't going to be orange again, though. I was disappointed to hear that we're not going back to the orange colour scheme. You're very old school, Jeff. We used to have a thing called Clipper Card. You'll want that as well, won't you, where you used to have to put this <laughs> paper ticket in the, uh, the, the system. Um, they're going to be yellow and black. The B network is going to be the whole of the transport system. And we're, we're calling it that because obviously the B is the symbol that is very visible across all of Greater Manchester, the worker B, you know, a city region based on cooperation and teamwork. Um, but it is very much a symbol of saying now the people are in charge of this system. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now we are into the uh, the bottom of the top. Yes. And class is in session. It's the class system and how to break it. It was the topic of episode 211, Who Gets On in Modern Britain, Breaking the Class Ceiling. And here is Isabel Faki, who is founder and CEO of the Creative Mentor Network. And Isabel told us about what she's doing with the network to bring opportunities to people without generational connections, which often blocks the people of lower means from getting into jobs such as creative industries. I, I think we should also say that we we also had on this episode Sam Friedman, uh, who wrote the book The Class Ceiling, and and. We sort of, I think he deserves a sort of honourable mention. Definitely. And if you miss that episode, it's certainly one of the ones worth going back to. We're giving you an amuse-bouche, aren't we? And we, you know, yeah. you can have the whole bouche if you sort of so desire. <laughs> Here is Isabel Faki. What are the specific barriers facing young people from working class backgrounds who want to work in the creative industries. I'm sure it's a huge range, but talk to us about that. It starts really early at school and really the, I would say the deprioritization of art subjects in schools in state in the state school system has been quite systematic over the last 10 years. And there's also kind of a real, I think social capital plays a huge part in it. All recruitment is to an extent network driven, but the creative industries specifically is really that's that's extremely exaggerated. But what that means is it's so often based on who you know rather than what you know. And and it's not even about necessarily being able to get that piece of work experience because your uncle works in an advertising agency or whatever. Quite a lot of the time, it's also just about knowing that those jobs exist. Like the students that we work with a lot of the time will understand, you know, their understanding of the creative industries is you know, they might have ambitions to be kind of a film director or a singer songwriter or an actor and those kind of headline creative industry jobs. But we'll have no idea about all of the kind of ecosystem of jobs that exist that are really interesting jobs and a lot less competitive and, and you know, potentially a lot less risky to attain. They won't necessarily have so much of an awareness of that. And that's very much what we're trying to do is, is, is connect, um, connect those dots so that they can understand, you know, what are the, what are the jobs? What are the routes into those jobs? What are the what are the financial incentives for going into those jobs? 
On that thing of systemic change, when you think about bosses of, of companies that you've worked with, employers that you've worked with, how do you kind of open their minds? How do you get to a situation where they understand that culturally the, the people who work for us in, in terms of business culture look and talk and behave like this? And how do you get past getting somebody from a different background into that company and not for them to feel like they have to learn to imitate that behavior to pass? I think the way that we try and think about it is like there are certain rules of the game and it's really important if you work in the creative industries and you want it to be inclusive to make those rules of the game really explicit because if they're if they're implicit like we had training session we were talking to someone the other day who we were talking about examples of cultural capital and how that can make you feel excluded and they said that when they there was someone who worked in publishing when they first started working in publishing they got invited to a party and on the invite said it was a dj party so they assumed there was going to be a dj there and they thought that was really exciting and whatever when they arrived it was actually a dinner jacket you know it was a dinner jacket dress code and that you know the way that that actually sorry they, it was before they arrived they realized that like you know, the, the idea that you didn't know that and that there was this sort of knowledge that you weren't aware of can make you feel really excluded. But it's also about, it's not about asking the young people that we're supporting to kind of completely adopt that cultural capital. It's also about encouraging them to see the value in, for example, like, you know, the food that they, they might eat at home with their family or the music that they're really interested in or like how TikTok works and how interesting that is, you know, like they're, it's it's about sort of empowering them and, and, and encouraging them to see their own value, their, their own cultural capital. Well, we really are now, you know, I'd say the the altitude is high, the tide is high and we're holding on. Mm -hmm. Is it? Is that right? I'm going to be your number one? Yes. Oh, Blondie. Well, I think it might have originally been an old reggae record, that. I don't think that's impressive that I knew that. I do. The tide is high and I'm holding on. I'm going to be your number one. What's wonderful is I think that rendition was <laughs> so tuneless that we are not in any danger of breaching any copyright laws. <laughs> I think they came after. If they came after us, we could legitimately argue that that is a completely different piece of music. Oh, look, you've deflated my oranges, honestly. <laughs> um, right at four, we're going to struggle to say this in Welsh. So, episode two hundred and two reasons to be Welsh. And you know, we said this already. There's lots of interesting things going on in Wales, and we want to talk to the man who Mark Drakeford, first minister of Wales. It was really good to talk to him. And I was quite struck. I think I mentioned this the other week. I was quite struck by the way that he talked about what is achievable when you're thinking about future politicians of the same sensibility who are going to inherit your policies. This was good. And here it is. Talk to us about your priorities for Wales as we hopefully come through the pandemic and, and look to economic recovery. Well, amongst our very top uh, priorities will be to make sure that there is no lost generation of young people here in Wales. You know, the pandemic is tough if you've uh, lived quite a long time. But if you are a 10-year-old child in Wales, this is over 10% of your whole lifetime has been spent in these extraordinary circumstances. And, you know, we remember, I remember myself. I came to Cardiff to be a probation officer on the Ely estate in Cardiff, which is still in my constituency. It was the largest council estate 
in the whole of Europe at the time. And the 1980s were a desperate time for young people growing up in Wales because there simply wasn't hope uh, of a future for them. And we are just so determined in Wales that as we come out of this pandemic, there will be no lost generation of young people paying the price economically for the efforts we've had to make to address the public health crisis. So our young person's guarantee of a job, employment uh, or training is at the forefront of our policy programme. Putting a social partnership bill uh, on the statute book here in Wales, we, you know, we operate in social partnership. Just as the Cabinet meets to discuss all key decisions, so our social partnership council, uh, our trade unions, local government colleagues, private sector, employers, we all sit around the same table together, thrashing out the difficult decisions as a way of crafting solutions to the problems that face us all. Now, we want to get into some of the detailed and incredibly imaginative policy that you're doing in Wales, Mark. But I, I, I talked to you a few months ago, and I, I just would think it'd be useful for our listeners for you to talk a little bit about the arc of sort of devolution in Wales. You've been the first minister since 2018. You were in the government before that as the health minister. Wales has done it differently over the course of the last 20 years or so, hasn't it? And how would you sort of characterise that? Well, the main way, I guess, in which we've done things differently is that we've been a Labour government throughout the whole period of devolution. And that means that, you know, we have the opportunities that that brings you to put Labour ideas into practice here in Wales. And when you are in power over an extended period of time, it absolutely does focus everybody's mind on the long-term consequences of the decisions that you make. So we have the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act here in Wales that requires all our decisions to be seen through the lens, not just of their impact in the here and now, but on people who will follow us in generations to come. And I do think that that gives you a different sort of mindset, really. It does mean that you're not trying to grab a headline for today and hope that you'll be, you know, in the Ministry of Deck Chairs by the time the (laughs) chickens come home to roost on it. We are into the big top three I can hardly bear the tension. And in, in the foothills of the uh, the, the lofty heights, I'm, I feel that I'm really not doing a good job with my metaphors today. I mean, you're really not. The oranges wasn't bad. Yeah, my oranges are really feeling it. We head north to Preston. Now, uh, it's episode 191, Prestonomics, taking back control of local economies. And this was something we touched on in one of our first live episodes, wasn't it? Yeah. Community wealth building and all of that, we really we really got the bug, didn't we? And we're great fans of Matthew Brown, now the leader of Preston Council. Yeah, and it proved to be incredibly popular with you too. So, so here he is, Matthew Brown, who, as Ed says, um, leader of Preston City Council and co-author of Paint Your Town, read how Preston took back control and your town can too. And here, Matthew tells us about how Preston is succeeding with their financial freedom. It does really matter because, in my opinion, the structural inequalities that we've seen through austerity, the financial crash, you know, Thatcherism and, you know, the consequences after that, it's really exposed the inequalities during the pandemic. So as we start rebuild after the pandemic, I think it's really important that we make sure we have a bit bit more of a radical uh, local economic agenda where people can benefit from it. What's the thing people in Preston would be most conscious of, you know, 
on in this community wealth building thing is it the li- the living wage people being paid the living wage is it is it the sort of in reinvesting money in preston what will be the thing that people are most cognizant of it's probably most telling with city centre regeneration that we did work with quite large global developers and try to wait for them to come in. But we've done it ourselves, you know, with the city council, the county council, the university, you know, to rebuild the city and make sure that, you know, it's all done publicly. It's done collaboratively. But, you know, let's get local people involved in these projects. In, in terms of the living wage, the council pays it, but also other big institutions. So it's happening in different areas through what the council does directly but how they influence so it's not all happening at the time the same time it's happening in uh, with different institutions so our university for example in april they uh, decided to raise wages to nine pound fifty an hour and the people who receive the the living wage increase they're not always aware it's a political strategy so obviously we've got to make sure we keep getting the message out positively tell us tell us about some of the other projects uh um intrigued by the municipally owned cinema complex yes again we if we don't do it ourselves nobody else is going to do it so this will be a 40 million pound cinema and it's going to be owned by the council obviously within that we're looking at local suppliers and local labor as far as we can through a community benefit agreement Uh, we're looking if we can get cooperatives in the supply chain as well so these are firms actually owned by the people who work within it but also, you know, we can then decide the environmental standards it's built to, but also the profits, if it makes any, which we, we think it will do, will then go back to the city. So that can be reinvested in the community. Well, we're into the top two. And, you know, it was really hard to choose here. We felt it was important to have an episode from COP. And I was doing the Today programme at the end of the COP. And I ran into Elizabeth Wathuti, uh, who is the founder of Green Generation and a young Kenyan activist, uh, and in a sense, this is a good companion to Vanessa Nakate because Elizabeth was talking at the end of the COP. And you'll find this has got a sort of relatively downbeat element to it because she felt pretty disappointed by the COP. But on the other hand, I do ask her at the end, just to keep you going, what her, keeps her going? And I thought it was incredibly moving to talk to her. And I was in the literally in the green room of the where the Today programme was in Glasgow. And I felt... You know, the voices of the global south aren't heard enough. And so we thought it was really, really important to have both Vanessa and Elizabeth on the podcast. If we look at what's happening in the global south, most of the food that we consume is food produced through agriculture by women. But it's also a bigger percentage is brought in countries in the north. So if our crops continue to fail in the next years, the supermarkets, the shelves might run empty. So I think it's important that people look at the connection of the issues of the impacts that happen in other countries and how they might end up impacting the rest of the world. Because it's a chain that, you know, the more loss and damage that we continue to suffer in our countries, it might in some point also continue to impact countries in the north. And... We're speaking on the Friday of the COP. We don't know when it's going to end. How do you feel about what has happened here? It's supposed to be the last day of the COP. And honestly, as a young person, I feel lied to because we have had so many broken promises so far. But what we're seeing the leaders putting forward is more commitments, you know, more pledges more reasons to keep us thinking that they're making progress when 
at the end of the day, I feel it's more broken promises because even what they're putting forward is not enough to keep 1.5 alive. Finally, then, you are still fighting for what you believe in. Yeah. You know, it's important for us to be to tell the truth, I think, uh, at the end of this COP uh, and about the climate crisis. But it's also important that we don't give up hope. Yeah. What keeps you hopeful? So I would rather not say what keeps me hopeful, but what keeps me going. Because for me, hope is meaningless if it's not followed by action. What keeps me going is knowing that I'm not in this fight alone. I have seen hundreds of thousands of people here in Glasgow alone who've been out on the streets, out of the blue zone. They want immediate action and they do not want to sit back and watch the planet become uninhabitable. And I also work with so many young people and children back at home. They are doing the best that they can to green their schools, to green their countries, to use their voices, to demand for action. And this to me is where the real change is going to come from. And the fact that I am doing this because I love nature, I love the planet, I love my people. And that's the deep-rooted passion and focus that keeps me going every day. Because if I do this because the leaders are not doing it, then there's a tendency to give up in the way. But that's not the reason why I am in this fight. It's because of the love for people and nature. And I hope everyone can do it because they love people and the planet and they want to do everything it takes to put people and the planet above profits. The time is here to reveal this year's number one idea. I think this is basically a sop, isn't it? Because my book didn't feature quite as much as maybe it would have done. But no, it's, it's not a sop. It's a deserved winner, isn't it, this? Well, it is a, it is a deserved winner. I wanted yeah. to make the point that Ed took a look at the charts and then all of a sudden one of the episodes from his book appeared at number one. Exactly. However, it is a great episode and it was one of my most popular ones of the year. It's from our mini-series on Go Big. And of course, we could have had so many from, from my book. Uh, you know, there's a big idea for gender equality, Father's Leave... A big idea to repair our democracy, which is about citizens' assemblies, which is a really good episode. My friend Archon Fung among them, um, Becky Willis, Graham Smith, um, how we all make change happen. I mean, I think, frankly, maybe I want a recount. <laughs> <laughs> Hanging chads. Yeah. I think I might take it to the Supreme Court. Well, it is the number one episode on the annual countdown. And this was genuinely the number one episode for listeners as well, wasn't it? Gen- genuinely, it was actually. I mean, if you just you, do it in terms of numbers, yeah. And we haven't actually said that. That, that, that unusually this year, whereas normally it's just our sort of capricious sort of, you know, which side of bed we got out in the morning. You did sort of shape these according to which episodes had sort of done best. Yes, but it's a bit like the Apple Podcast chart in that there were there were a few different factors at sure, play. Sure, sure, sure. But you did a bit of seasonal adjustment, a bit of sort of you know a bit of waiting, a bit, yes. of, a bit of waiting, a bit of swingometer, yes. a bit of yeah. cephalogy, a bit of the cross tabs. You know, putting in an equation. You know, doing some sort of quantification, getting the PhD team involved. And this yes, is what all, you came out with. All, and what came out was that the number one episode in the countdown of, uh, of episodes of Ed Miliband's podcast was an episode about Ed Miliband's book. Yeah. It was a great episode. It was uh, the, the second, Go Big 2, a big idea to rethink the economy. And we spoke to author of Donut Economics, co-founder of the Donut Economics Action Lab. She's just brilliant, Kate Rayworth. Whoop, whoop.
So Amsterdam knew that they wanted to create a circular economy, right? We all need to go to low carbon, zero carbon. But the climate crisis is one crisis. We also having an impact on the living world through massive resource use, especially in the cities and nations of the global north. We're drawing in materials and matter to make our clothing and food and electronics and construction materials and consumer goods. And then this stream of waste that goes out. So Amsterdam said, we recognize we have to transform this. We're going to create a circular economy. And they used the donut as the sort of concept at the heart of their vision. So we want to create a circular economy that also is socially equitable, that creates jobs for people, that also helps transform our impact on climate change. So they put it at the center of their vision. What I'm impressed about what Amsterdam have done, quite a few things. One, they were the first city to stand up and say, we're going to be a donut economy. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a level at which people said, you, you what? A donut, right? And they said, yeah, we're going to do this. Here's the vision and we're going to put it into practice. They came up with a really big vision to be a thriving, inclusive, regenerative city for all people while respecting planetary boundaries. And then they've got this district of the city called Bijkslotterham. Love my Dutch accent. Bijkslotterham is this circular living lab where you can build housing or offices or anything that happens there has to be circular. It's all about learning. So some of the designs will work and some of them won't work, but it's all learning. And of course, what happens in that experimental site then becomes an example of the whole city. And what happens in the whole city inspires other cities, inspires other nations, and we see this rising. We're all big slaughterizers now. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do it very well, the, the uh, pronunciation. The world of data is getting richer and it's getting faster and it's getting more human and it's getting more ecological. So we are, in this data revolution, going to have much greater capacity to listen to Earth and society in their natural metrics, the metrics of people's lives, the metrics of the health of the planet. And that's going to become almost more like real time. And the more that that comes through, the idea that instead of looking at that rich, pulsing reality, that no, 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 let's turn to this one number of monetary sales going up and down will seem absurd. And if Simon Kuznets were alive, you know, the creator of the number that we now call GDP, be like, what are you doing? I only had that number. You've got this phenomenal data source. Come on, guys. Wake up. It's the 21st century. Move on. He'd be the first to move into this. And there we have it. How does it feel to be top of the pot? Oh, it eh? just feels great, Jeff. And all of my fetching away. Fetching is sort of complaining in Yiddish. Do you, do you know that? I did know that, yes. You did know that? With a mother-in-law like mine, uh, I've become very conversant in a lot of Yiddish phrases and words. I love your mother-in-law. She has her moments. Also, there's this great phrase, which I actually use in my speech about Leo, which is shepping nachas, which means taking pride. What did Leo shep nachas in? Well, I was talking about it, all his children and grandchildren and how he was shepping nachas about them. Lovely. Anyway, where were we? We were at the top of the pops. You were basking in the glory of the number one slot. What do you think next year will bring, Jeff? I think we should tell people next year is going to bring Jack Thorne, actually, for our first episode, isn't it? Yes, Jack is a phenomenal writer. I'm really excited about this. And um, this year he wrote the television film Help, which was about carers and um, disabled people during COVID-19. You'll also know him from his Dark Materials, which he adapted for television. Kiri, which was a fantastic drama about adoption, National Treasure a few years ago. He co-wrote This Is England. He's phenomenal. And that's, that's the stuff he's done for screen. Beyond that, he's had an incredible career in the theatre. 
Do you remember you went to see a play called The End of History with David Morrissey? Oh, yes, I did. And Leslie Sharp. Yes, I did. That was one of his. It was a, a great play about a family living through the new Labour years. He's just incredibly prolific. We could do a whole episode just listing what he's written. And he's now one of the people behind a campaign called Underlying Health Condition, which uh, was launched back in December. And it's all about supporting and accommodating disabled people in the arts, television and film particularly. And he's just a wonderful man. He was on Desert Island Discs recently, if you caught that. Uh, He's great. And we're so much looking forward to having this conversation with him. Well, yeah, definitely. Uh, It's going to be great. Well, I think all there is to do now is to thank all of our guests that we've had on in 2021. It was really hard to choose. We thank all of our guests. They give up their time for free, uh, the goodness of their heart, promoting their ideas. We really, really are grateful to them, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. And we're particularly grateful to all of our listeners for keeping with us, for starting listening. This podcast will be nothing without you. It'd just be me and him having a conversation without you. Yeah eavesdropping exactly well that is sort of in a way we want it to be but we want to thank them we really appreciate it so so thank you and we should thank everyone who's uh, who's responsible for the podcast our rock is emma caution the week rock in. emma the rock she, she is the rock emma uh, the rock caution listening to us being inane it's her job to sculpt something out of and it she is the original it's like a pop band it was yeah. the three of us wasn't it to begin with we're the ones still standing. People have arrived, fallen by the wayside. And yet here we are, the, the three musketeers. Exactly. The cheerful triumvirate. Exactly. So thank you to Emma, whose work we appreciate greatly. Particularly when I screw up my recordings. Which is most weeks. Yeah. We should thank Joel Pierce, who uh, pretty much everything you heard today, Joel was the yeah. researcher and he yeah, that's uh, true. Found, found all those guests for us. So thanks to Joel. But he no longer works with us. He's, he's spat us the out. Quitter. Yeah. The quitter. <laughs> Are you thinking Joel's out of the credits for the end of the, for next year? Well, I'm just 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 thinking about you really and your uh, ability to move on emotionally. Yeah, I think that's it'd be true. good for you to get some closure at this okay, point. Okay, okay. Well, maybe that's it yes. for Joel. <laughs> and uh, and then thanks to Joe Kenyon at Goldfish yeah. who supports us yeah. in our endeavours. And as ever, Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our idents, and our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been Ed Meliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been 2021 Reasons to be Cheerful. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.